Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. So for this summer, we have changed the uh, way that we're doing worship. We're not following the Revised Common Lectionary. We're not having, oh, uh, a highly varied worship service. We're really just using three blocks of, of worship. The first block is singing hymns, usually all in the same section of the hymnal. And then the second block is prayer. And then the third block is reading through a chapter of the New Testament at a time. So we did the book of, uh, gee, what was the first book that we did? Oh, Philippians. Um, and we concluded that, and then the church said that they wanted to do James, which would be lovely, except we don't have quite enough um, time to do that. And the second book that they wanted, which was Romans. And as much as I love James, I actually do think James is my favorite book if I had to pick one. Romans really is just absolutely essential for being acquainted with if you're going to call yourself a Christian. So I made the executive decision to cover Romans, and so today's episode is the first chapter of Romans. And if you know anything about um, book, the letter to the Romans, the very first chapter is, um, depending on who you are, the most offensive um, book it, it it flies in the face of our modern culture's approach to identity and gender theory, and I've I've preached briefly on this topic in years past, but this time I really leaned into it just in case anybody was confused about um, what the Bible says or what a, a biblical answer to the culture is on gender theory and and sexual expression. So um, that's not the entirety of, of the message. We, we go through the whole book, but when it, when it comes time to talk about that, we talk about it. So um, your engagement is welcome and responses afterwards. I don't offer my opinion on these things. I, I just don't see why anyone should care about my opinion. My, my task is to present what the Bible says about such things and how modern Christians can and probably should think about these things and reason through these things. So I hope it's a blessing to you, um, depending on what walk of life you're from. What you're going to hear now is is either uh, entirely new to you or um, uh, not very new at all. So either way, the point here is not to be new. The point is to be true. Man, I'm going to make a t-shirt out of that. Anyway, enjoy your time with us, folks. Blessings. I know we agreed on James last week. However, there's not, between now and Advent, there's not enough space for us to do James and Romans. And the Delaware Church asked to do Romans. A few people here wanted to do Romans last week, so I made an executive decision. We're going to walk through Romans together. In many ways, Romans is the backbone of the New Testament. Uh, it's an important book for everybody to know and to call on and, and to be informed by. Um, so I want to urge you... Um, if, if you are able to see the big print in your uh, Bible, to pick up your Bibles and go to uh, page 1744 where Paul's letter to the church in Rome begins. Now, as a setup for this, Rome, of course, was the capital city of the Roman Empire. 
They uh, surrounded the entire Mediterranean Sea. They had subjected the Jewish people as well as hundreds of other people groups uh, under their imperial rule. The culture of Rome was uh, uh, polytheistic. They believed in hundreds if not thousands of gods. It was expected that people would worship the Roman gods as well as their local gods and any other gods that they wanted to. They, they viewed it as kind of like a, a shopping cart kind of thing where you could, you, know, you could worship this god for this, this god for this other thing. In the heart of the Roman Empire, though, um, there was a church that got formed. Paul didn't, didn't start it, but Paul is writing to it. That's what this letter is. He's heard of them. He's, he's writing about uh, things that he's... Uh, sure that they need to know about that they might not know about already. Um, Christians were hated by the Roman Empire from the get-go. They were not liked. They were suspected of being a, uh, a fifth column. That means a, a, a people in a nation that might rebel against that nation, might, might partner with, with other nations. Christians uh, did not worship the Roman gods. They didn't worship any gods except their god, and they were called atheists for that reason. That's distracting. You got to, no, no, no. We'll just worry about that after worship. Thank you. Just sit. Um, so Christians were hated. They were seen as um, unpatriotic, dangerous. They, they were called cult members. They were persecuted. Uh, and it's in the heart of the Roman Empire that a church began. These people are probably not very educated, probably not very rich. Uh, they're probably hated by their neighbors, and they're banding together against the onslaught of cultural hostility around them. Some of them are Gentiles, some of them are Jews. It's, it's just a, a weird mix. Uh, some people think they're just barely holding together. We don't know much about it. All we know about them is, is insinuations that, that Paul makes in this letter. So you can't go very far with insinuations. He talks about um, faith, the importance of faith for salvation. That's going to be a theme that we begin today, but it carries all the way through. Um, it's 16 chapters long, and I want to spend 16 weeks on it, I think it's that worthy. And I want us to do what we did with Philippians, weave the themes, and then apply them to our lives. So I know not everybody can be here for 16 weeks straight. My hope is that, that you will do your best to, to stay plugged in with us, to get to know Romans really well, so that it likewise informs your faith in a powerful way. So I've said what my hopes are, but this is America, and you're going to do what you're going to do. All right, um, let us begin. Romans chapter 1, listen to the Word of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Now, this isn't going to be core or key for today's message, but I wanted to find the terms because Christians should know what these words mean. Anytime you see the word servant, the Greek word is doulos, and it means slave. It's one who follows without question and obeys. Anytime he calls himself a servant, he's calling himself a slave of Jesus. Uh, an apostle. That's another word that we hear all the time. We don't necessarily know the meaning of. It's from the Greek apostello. It means one who is sent. So he'll talk about how Christ sent him on his mission, but then he'll talk about how Christ sends all of us. We're all apostles in one way. Um, another word, gospel. Does anybody remember what gospel means? Hey, look at you guys. Okay, very good. Okay, then I don't need to explain that one. Gospel means good news. Verse 2. What is this gospel? The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So this is a fulfillment of Hebrew prophecy. So he's, these are things that only a Jewish audience would know about. So he's writing to the Jews, this Jesus has fulfilled these prophecies. Verse 3, regarding his son. Whose son? The father's son. The father in heaven, he sent his son. 
who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. So who have I been talking about? Jesus Christ. Now there he sets up a doctrine that is usually summarizes the full humanity and full divinity of Christ Jesus. Jesus was fully God and fully man. So according to his fully man identity, he was the son of uh, Joseph, who was a descendant of David. And so that fulfills a lot of prophecies. But he's also a divine being, Christ Jesus, the word made flesh. And so he's fully God, fully man. If you didn't ever know, you know how there's always two candles on an altar piece in, in worship? These two candles represent the fully human and fully divine nature of Jesus. So that's supposed to be a theological symbolic reminder of those things to you. All right, so we're talking about Jesus now. Verse 5, through him we received grace and apostleship. So we remember apostle means being sent. So we received a mission, we're being sent. Now grace is the undeserved free gift of God, right? And it is a gift peculiar to to God. Nobody else can give grace. It's God's gift that we don't deserve and can't purchase. So through Jesus, we've received this grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. So we're talking about obedience, but obedience flows out of faith. And I preached a good deal on faith over the years, but I, I, I think it's been a minute since I really was hammering it. Things important to remember about faith are we do not create our own faith. We do not choose to believe. It's God who gives us our faith through his grace. God has given us faith, and it's faith that saves us. So that's why we know that there's no work that we can do on our part. We can't choose to believe. It's God who offers belief, faith to us, that then we receive, and we either work out our faith in fear and trembling, work out our salvation with fear and trembling, or we don't. We, we don't live faithful lives. So, but that faith always leads to obedience. Obedience to what? When we have faith in Christ Jesus, what are we obedient to? God. How do we know what God has commanded? How do we know what to, to do to be obedient? Read your Bible. Yeah, a couple of you lifted it up. A couple of you just said it quietly. If, if you have saving faith, you will obey what's in the Bible. I don't think anybody wants to argue that. If you do, call me later and I will be gentle with you, but this is, this is an area of non-negotiability. You have to obey. If you have faith, you will obey. It's not you have to. You will. Um, verse 6, and you also are among those Gentiles. So he's already addressed some Jews. Now he's addressing Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So he doesn't say you chose to belong to him. He said you've been called. Verse 7, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. So he's addressing the church. You've been called. I'm addressing all of you. This is a collective second person plural address. Grace and peace to you from God and from the Lord Je- God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. He offers this blessing in almost all of his books and letters. Verse 8, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. This is quite a thing. The Roman church is being persecuted in the heart of the Roman Empire, and they're standing firm and faithful. That sounds pretty impressive to me. Verse 9, God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, 
the way may be opened for me to come to you. So he's saying, I'm proud of you, you're doing great, and I'm praying for you all the time. This is, this is I, th- I think, near the end of Paul's uh, career. He's already planted dozens of churches in Asia Minor, east of here. He has not been to Rome, but he says, I've heard about you, I'm praying for you, we're going to get together and it's going to be great. Um, that was 10, wasn't it? We're in 11 now? Yeah. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. They're getting beat up. He wants to strengthen them. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. So this is the same theme that we saw in Philippians, how our faith is uh, helped by the faith of others. We're all bound together in faith. And he's saying, I want to visit you to build you up, and you're going to build me up too. We're all connected. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but I've been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among other Gentiles. So this is kind of a transactional thing. He's saying, I want to produce something good for God with you. You're a field. I want to harvest something. I want to produce some good fruit. So he's not, he's not coming and saying, I just want to spend time with you guys, get to know you a little bit. You know, that's what pastors say. Uh, there's a saying about pastors. People don't care how much you know till they know how much you care, right? But here he's just going, I only care about God. And I hear you're doing a good job serving him, so let's get together and bear some fruit for God. It's all about God for him. Is that a good thing or a bad thing to always be focused on God? It's a good thing, yeah. God is not at the judgment. We're not going to come before God's judgment seat and he go, you know, Jeffrey, you were all right, but you talked and thought about me way too much. That's just not going to happen. You know, he's not going to condemn anyone for making, making their lives revolve around him. He is going to condemn many who don't, who don't center their lives around him. All right, um, verse 14, I am obligated both to Greeks and to non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. I read this wrong all my life until this week whenever I was looking through it. Whenever he says, I'm obligated to them, I thought, like, in his whole ministry, he's learned so much from them, and he just owes them so much. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying, because I follow God and he has put me on mission, I am obligated to go give them this good news. I'm, I'm obligated to preach to them, and I'm obligated to preach to you. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. This could be a backhanded compliment. He's saying, I've... I've been called to preach to wise people and idiots. So he could be saying, you guys are dummies, but I'm going to preach to you anyway. Or he could be saying, he's not saying what he thinks of them. He's just saying, my call is to preach to everybody and to you too. I'm going to be there. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to build you up. I'm going to offer you a spiritual gift. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew than to the Gentiles. So remember, he's writing a community with Jews and Gentiles, and he's saying, if you've read Acts of the Apostles, you know wherever Paul went, he went to the synagogue first. He ministered to the Jews first, and when they kicked him out, which they usually did, then he would go to the Gentiles. And he's saying this is how it works. God is saving his first covenant people, and then he's welcoming into covenant everybody. Anyone who believes in Christ Jesus can be saved. It's no longer... Salvation is no longer just for the Jews. It's for everybody who comes under Christ Jesus. That's the condition. It's not everybody under no condition. It's everybody under the condition of coming under Christ Jesus. Verse 17. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness 
that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So the Greek word for righteousness is uh, dikaios. It means one who can stand. It, the inference is in the judgment. So when Christ's righteousness has been imputed onto you, then you can stand in the judgment. But if you stand in your own righteousness, you are unrighteous. You are wicked. You will not stand in the judgment. So it's saying that righteousness only comes by faith. You see how we connected that right there? For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. And who gives us faith? God. We don't give it to ourselves. We don't earn it. God gives it to us. From first to last, it's God who saves us. It's him who makes us, he who makes us righteous, he who works that fruit in us. So the righteous will live by faith. It's right up there. I'm feeding you the lines. The righteous will live by is the church supposed to be righteous people? Yes. So we are supposed to live by faith. Okay. This is going to change notes now. Um, this has been building up, encouraging. God's righteousness is being revealed. There's faith. This is all going to be negative from here on out. And it's going to condemn our culture. It condemns their culture back then. It's going to condemn our culture today. So I'm going to tell you a joke. So I hope this sets you right to hear with the right ears. And then we're going to go back into a hard word. But the joke is that there's a new pastor right out of seminary in Kentucky. He goes to a local church. And the very first Sunday, he preaches about the evils of drinking and how it destroys families and ruins health and, and how it's just an awful, awful uh, blight in our society. And after worship, the, the committee calls him says, Pastor, you cannot be preaching against alcohol consumption. We have all kinds of Kentucky bourbon. You know, this is a big part of the economy here. It's a big part of the culture here. You cannot preach against drinking. Okay. He says, all right, okay, guys, I, I hear you. All right, next Sunday he comes, and he gives uh, uh, a very hard sermon uh, against gambling, the love of money, um, uh, mammon, and how it's, 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 it's likewise something that tears people apart, tears them from God. And once again, after worship, the committee gets him together and they say, you cannot preach against gambling here. We have the Kentucky Derby. It's a big part of tradition here. You cannot preach against this culture. So finally, he just gives up. In the next sermon, he, he gives a sermon about the evils of voodoo religion from Haiti. And of course, there is no voodoo religion in the region in which he preaches. And they love the sermon. And he's learned what? Not to even talk about the local culture to just judge those in different places, but not to, to, to help people reflect on their own culture. And what I would say is, that's not really a very funny joke because uh, this is what damnation looks like. Whenever a pastor is not willing to preach against the culture in which the church is situated, you can be guaranteed that you are being escorted into hell in a handbasket. My job is to warn you. And I'm not going to warn you about anything that's not in the Bible, but when there is something in the Bible, then God help me if I don't warn you. So you, this is America, like I said, but even in other lands, you can disagree. It is your prerogative to agree or disagree, but it is not my prerogative to teach anything that is not in the Bible. And it's not my prerogative to skip over anything that's in the Bible. I would, be, I, I would need to turn in my credentials as a pastor if I skipped over this passage coming up. And for the first time preaching on this topic, I'm not going to be squeamish. I'm not going to lean away. I'm going to lean into it. I'm going to give you the fullness of what I, I believe it says. And then it's up to you to decide whether or not you're going to let that speak to you. Deal? 
Okay. I got everybody real tense now. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. God has made it plain to them, it says. There's wicked people, godless people. God's wrath is being poured out on them right now. Why are they wicked? Because they are not in the truth. They suppress the truth by their wickedness, it said, verse 18. So verse 20, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. What is he saying right here? He's saying that God's wrath is poured out rightly upon the wicked. Who's wicked? Everyone outside of Christ. He's saying everyone outside of Christ, everyone who is not serving Christ in holiness and righteousness, God's wrath is currently being poured out on them and will be poured out on them for eternity. How is that right and just? A lot of people would say these people don't even know who the Lord is, and yet he's going to judge them, and he's anticipating that, and he's saying they know who the Lord is. And they might answer, well, they don't have the Bible. They don't serve the Hebrew God. He says, you don't need to have the Bible to know that there is a God. God, if you just open your eyes, everything is evidence of a God who not only created us, but sustains us. Did you wake up this morning and breathe air and stick to the ground because of gravity? Then that's evidence of God. Do you have a family who loves you? Do you, do you have a dog that loves you? All these things that are, that are connecting you to beauty, to love, that are all around you. They're evidence of God. So you have no excuse for not dedicating your life to the Lord. He's revealed himself to you. You have no excuse. That's what it says here. And I lost my place. Oh, verse 20. These things have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. It's saying everybody deserves condemnation because they're choosing not to worship God as God. So I, I saw a joke article this week from the Babylon Bee. The headline is, oh man, did it not work out? Oh, I felt so funny. It's not on there, huh? If y'all don't know the Babylon Bee, it's a, a satirical, oh, that ruins, mm, I felt so smart putting it in there. So, okay, this last week, there is, we have a space telescope in the air that just took this amazing shot, right, of uh, galaxies way back in deep space. And uh, all of a sudden, all these scientists and atheists who are sure that no, there's no God, they are consumed with awe, and they just are filled with this desire to praise something. Can't be God, because those Christian idiots can't be right. Well, no, this whole creation drives us to worship the Lord. It's that beautiful. It's that amazing. And so I guess the next meme didn't show up either, huh? My hope is in Jesus, not in technology. But man, am I disappointed. Um, the next one, what was it? Oh, it was a quote from a Prager you... Uh, well, anyway, I'm going to make the point anyway. We have no excuse. God's glory is, is for everybody to see. Now, something for us to be clear about, though, is... Every, God created everything, the whole universe, us, animals, this world, perfect. And that means not subject to decay and death. Everything was meant and originally designed to last forever in perfect union and harmony. That got thrown off when we chose sin rather than God. When we've turned away, it ruined everything. Not just us and God, 
It ruined animals in God. It ruined the earth in God. It ruined the universe in God. So these things maintain some beauty that point us towards God. However, the only perfect thing in this universe is God. So God has allowed signs of himself to remain all around us so that everything points us to him. And yet, we don't worship the creation. We worship the creator. Does that make sense? All right, let's go on. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So what it's saying here is God, they turned away from him and he let them become depraved and degraded in their minds. So they're not even inclined towards God anymore. They're inclined towards idols, idolatry, whether they be idols in the form of humans, in the form of other animals, in the form of art, in the form of cars, in the form of sports, in the form of family, anything that is not God that competes for your attentions and affections is an idol. And the reason that we are inclined towards idolatry is because we chose not to love God as lo God deserves. We chose to love other things and people as though they can save us. Only one can save us, and it's God. He deserves our entire fidelity and affection and love and obedience, right? That's what we're talking about. So we're talking about uh, idolatry in verse 23. And in the Old Testament, you should know idolatry, anytime the, the people of Israel fall into idolatry, it's marked by sexual sin as well. Same exact thing here. So we're going to connect to sexual sin and then other sin more broadly. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. There are seven um, scriptures in the Bible that are clearly condemning of uh, homosexual acts. This is one of them. This is the only one that explains what is theologically wrong with it. It's not just an ick factor. You know, I, I, uh, it's, uh, there are a lot of people who think it's just icky and that's why it's a sin. It, it's not icky. Well, it's not a sin because it's icky. It's a sin because it interrupts what God designed to be natural sexual relations. It uses that word natural. And the Greek word is uh, phusika, but it's where we get the word physical from. It's that original intent, the way that God designed us. There is only one way that our sexuality is supposed to operate in this life. And the Bible is clear from beginning to end. It's in a covenant relationship with a person of the opposite sex. Now, whenever I first read this section, I remember the first time I read it and paid attention, I was a freshman in high school and I was angry. I was livid because I, I knew and liked gay people uh, and I did not want to believe that they were sinning. I, I just thought it was the height of homophobia to condemn this sexual act and no others. Now, first off, there's already language here 
the Greek word is porneia, about, it's against all sexual immorality. So it's not just homosexual acts, it's any sexual acts outside of a male-female covenant relationship. So it's anything outside of that. It, remind me, what did Paul and Jesus say about if everybody should be married? Did they say anything about that? Both of them said it's better not to get married. That if at all possible, you should not get married. Because you shouldn't be, sex has much more capacity to do harm spiritually than to do good. So it's better just to steer clear of that. And then the language that both use is if you're burning with passion, then God gives you one person, your married person, to allow you to act sexually in the world. That's the only condition under which you can have sex, and it does not separate you from God. That's what Paul is addressing here, that sex matters. We humans, we have bodies, and what we do with our bodies matters. There's a Gnostic impulse that's been there forever that says what we do with our bodies doesn't matter. We have these spirits, and we can do whatever with our bodies, and it doesn't affect our spirits. And that's a lie from the evil one. What we do with our bodies matters. We live in an age that has been saying since the 1960s, oh, it doesn't matter what you do in bed. The Bible is very clear, yes, it does. I'm intentionally looking people in the eyes so you see how personal this is. Now, there are a lot of people who instantly look at this and they've got a number of arguments. One argument is, well, back then they didn't have uh, mutual gay relationships, loving, affirming relationships like we have today. They didn't have people getting married and partnering off for all of life and living out that love. Yes, they did. They absolutely did. We have all kinds of documentation that they had homosexual relationships exactly like we're, we're having today. We're not doing anything new. We always feel as Americans like we're doing new stuff. We are not. There's nothing new under the sun. We didn't invent anything. The only thing different about our context is we have more technology, more synthetics. So when you look at the reason that we've been able to be so sexually licentious, the reason that people are... Uh, defacing the image of God. Uh, we live in a, a time where transsexualism is really taking off. People say, I was born a male, but I feel like a female, so I need, home, I need uh, hormone therapy and I need to have surgery to change my anatomy. That's something that people could never do in any society before now because the tech wasn't there. And people couldn't sleep around the way they do because the pill wasn't around until 50 years ago. So with modern contraception, hormone therapy, surgery, we have created a very unnatural environment where people can let their worst demons out sexually and we feel entitled to no consequences for it, even though there's still consequences. And that's why people are so upset about abortion. Pregnancy is a natural consequence of having sex between a man and a woman. It has always produced that. It is a strange culture that goes, oh, how dare my body get pregnant? I'm going to end this. We have felt entitled to a level of agency and control in our lives that we can't have. The biblical instruction is do not have sex unless you are in a marriage. And then you don't deal with any of this stuff. Don't deface the image of God in you. Don't, don't, don't question how God made you. Now, some people say, hear that and they say, well, God made me gay. God made me gay. No, he didn't. He didn't make you straight either. There is no such thing as gay or straight. I know that's a weird thing to say, but there's just human bodies with human sex drives and we're inclined in different ways for lots of different reasons. 
And the reason I say it, if you just read a little history, you see that the sexual norms of each culture are very different. Before Christianity, Christianity enters the, the, the scene, uh, there are different levels of homosexuality, bestiality, having sex with kids. There are all kinds. Of, I know that's weird, but you look at cross-culturally, there are lots of different sexual norms. There doesn't seem to be much innate human sexual behavior. There's just a lot of culturally responsive sexually behavior, sexual behavior. Have you ever known anybody who's like real into motorcycles? Oh man, I got on my Harley and oh, I can never get off. I'm for the ride or day, die. I'm going to be a Harley man till the day I die. You know somebody like that? Macy, you're grinning. Okay. If you don't know a biker, how about a cowboy? Oh, I, I got my boots on and my cowboy hat and I'm a, I'm a cowboy till I die. You know, that it, we create identities around all kinds of things that we love, right? But there wasn't cowboys past 300 years ago. If Jeff Holt was born 500 years ago, he wouldn't have just been inventing cowboy hat culture and all this. He would have been a different kind of guy. But it, it feels like it goes down to your bones, doesn't it? You've only ever been a part of this. And that's what sexuality is like. It feels like it's part of us. It feels like it's deep down in our bones. But that's not what defines us. Our identity is not in who we're sexually attracted to. It's not in our gender identity. These are constructs that, that we are told are real, but they're just a shadow. They don't define you. They don't define me. What we do defines us. And what passions we give into define us. Paul was writing to the Roman context, and if you don't know about ancient Rome, gay stuff was real common. Real common. There was, no, there was no ick factor about it. In fact, men in the Roman Empire desired men more than women as a general rule. They thought it was really weird when a guy only had sex with women. The example I know is General Pompey. He only liked his wife. He didn't like sleeping around with other guys, and they're like, this guy's effeminate. He only sleeps with women. Isn't that weird? I mean, that seems very strange to us. We're so centered on our own culture. But Paul, when he wrote this book to the Romans, this letter to the Romans, he was arguing against the water they were swimming in. He is not writing a homophobic bunch of people who've never seen a gay person. He's writing people who are swimming in, in what we would identify as gay culture, and he's saying it's wrong. It's wrong. It's because their minds are inclined towards idolatry. And when you read Ephesians chapter 5, it says flat out, that sex is meant to be between a, a husband and a wife, and it reflects the union of Christ and his church. Christ is the male, the church is the female. We are in union with Christ, and that a man and a woman in marital union are replicating that. They're symbolically joining in the union of Christ and his church. That's why that is the only okay act. There's a theological symbolism there. The theological symbolism of anything outside of that, including gay stuff, but not limited to it, Having sex with anybody you're not married to is considered pornea. Uh, having sex with other things that are not even humans. All of this is the, the byproduct of people who chose not to love God, but have chosen to love themselves, others, things that are not God. That's what Paul is saying here. Now, this is really hard for us because, uh, I mean, I'll speak for myself. In undergrad, uh, I was a bartender first off. There was a group of lesbians that adopted me to be their bartender when they got together and watched the L Word on HBO. It was HBO that carried the L Word, I think. I don't remember. It wasn't a very good show. I just loved the novelty of being like the one straight guy in the sea of women who were not at all attracted to me and serving drinks. At the time, I just thought it was an innocent, fun thing. And a lot of my friends were gay. My best friend for a long time in undergrad was a, a, a lesbian. 
I was very firm. There's absolutely nothing wrong with this. Uh, I didn't see a problem with it. It was only when I really came to Christ later on that I, I finally could submit to this instruction. And so this is where it gets really important for us because a lot of us know and love gay people, don't we? Gay people are, are no better than or worse than anybody else. This is something we have to be clear on. And I've, I find it kind of offensive when people are like, oh, this can't be a, a sin because it turns out somebody I love is gay. Oh, so people you love can't be sinners? Oh, you were okay uh, uh, preaching against the gays when you didn't know any. But now that you know one, oh, uh, it turns out you were just homophobic all along. You know, the church is not supposed to be filled with homophobes, people who just bash the gays and have a unique problem with gay people. Uh, the, the sin we're talking about here is no better or worse than any other. And we live in a cultural context where we have tried to take some sins and go, this one you can't talk about anymore. You can still talk about greed. You can still talk about wrath. can't talk about lust. And the church has to politely say, no, we have to talk about lust. Lust will, will drag this culture down into hell. In fact, it's already happening. God's wrath is being poured out on people who are slaves to lust. It was happening in the Roman context back then. It's happening today. Gee, is our society miserable? Is there any way that it could be because we have turned away from the Lord and we're doing what's right in our own eyes, sexually and otherwise? There's so many people, they don't even think about this. They go, yeah, I'm miserable, but it's because I'm not having sex enough. I'm not sleeping around with enough men or women. I need to scratch that itch more. And the answer is no, you need to go back. You need to go back. We need to go back. We are not happier. We are miserable. Would you believe that young people today have less sex? People in their late teens and early 20s have less sex than they did in the 1950s. This is widely known among people who study it. Everybody assumes because we have this licentious culture that everybody's swimming in sex. We have the most miserable sexual culture among young people that this world has ever seen. Erectile dysfunction, um, dysfunction in the bedroom. Uh, other than that, it is a miserable thing to be a young person sleeping around. It was getting bad whenever I was young and in sin and doing that. It's even worse today. Sexuality is not meant to be ex expressed in the way that we're seeing the culture around us. It's a gift from God that's meant to be expressed in a biblical way or not at all. So there's social science, there's history, sociology. Uh, I, I, I was once on another side on this and then I just started reading and praying and reflecting. We live in a culture now that wants us to shut up. I think it would be a big mistake if we did. We have a culture right, right here in this church where a lot of people have chosen to side with the culture on this one rather than what's in the Bible. And I don't imagine that I'm gonna preach at you for 15 minutes and you go, well, I'm gonna change everything now. I know that's not how it works. What I want you to do is I want you to go home and pray about it. Let's, let's go through the rest of this and I'm gonna come back and ask you, these people who are doing these other things, cause it's not just picking on gay folks here. It's a number of sins. We're gonna go through all these sins and I'm gonna ask you, the people who do these sins, do you think that they were all just wicked, awful, detestable people or do you think that they were generally likable let's let's look at this i i got uh, are we in uh oh wait okay verse 28 is that where we are okay furthermore just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of god so god gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done so the notion is that God doesn't make you be holy if you don't want to be holy. He doesn't make you follow him if you don't want to follow him. He extends his grace to you. 
And then if you don't take it up and walk with him, then he says, okay, fine, go what direction you want to. If you want to go to hell, go to hell. But then your mind starts getting deranged and depraved. He gives you over to it. Verse 29, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. A lot of people read that and go, that's not a big deal. Yeah, it is. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. So this last section is this list of people. God gave them over to their own minds, their own sin, and this is the kind of lifestyle they lead. It's marked by all these things. Now, we would be mistaken to imagine that he's saying this is all they are. These are still people who love their kids, pay their taxes, obey the lo local laws, participate in voluntary groups. It's just they don't worship the Lord, and they are prone towards idolatry, and these sins have rule over their lives. As we're reading about this vice list, first off, we're not talking about gay people anymore. He, right, before it was just saying this idolatry thing, yes, it goes in a sexual direction like it did in the Old Testament. But now he's saying, if you don't know the Lord, if you're not serving him as he deserves, if you're not obeying him in your personal life, then here's the sin that you're a slave to. And a lot of people who are slave to sin, do, you, do, you, do any of you know sinners? Unrepentant sinners? I know several unrepentant sinners. I really like them. I used to go sit in the jail with guys that had done despicable things, but they were sober. They had a good sense of humor. They'd look me in the eyes and smile. I really like a lot of wicked people. But just because I like them does not mean that they're not sinning. Just because I love somebody. I deeply love some people that are dead in their sins, and I've tried to get them to wake up, and they've chosen not to wake up. They take offense at me for trying to wake them up. Just because I deeply love them does not mean they are not sinning. Sin is sin. Truth is truth. And God deserves a people who live in truth, even if it's uncomfortable. And God deserves a people who will love sinners. Did Jesus love sinners? Now, when you love a sinner, does that mean that you don't talk about their sin? Does that mean that you bless their sin and say, hey, it's okay. I don't think it's a big deal. Is that a loving thing to say? Now, is it a loving thing to get in their face and say, you're a sinner and you're going to go to hell unless you repent. You should get on your knees right now. Is that how we're supposed to do it? I was trying to make that ridiculous. So, you know, no, that's not the way we do it either. We love people. We warn people. We confess our sins. Any here ever sin? Anybody here still not perfect? Anybody here still can, I mean, do you gossip? Do you slander? Are you ever boastful? Do you ever participate in strife? Do you ever feel malice? I mean, these are sins that we participate in sometimes, aren't they? So this, the church thing is not, oh, look at those nasty, evil people over there, and we're so much better than them. It's, man, we've been saved out of being nasty and evil, and we didn't think we were nasty and evil, but Jesus showed us that we are, and now we're walking in the light, and God's wrath is being poured out on the world out there. Maybe you guys keep your head in the sand, but if you look at what's going on in No Water, there's some depraved stuff going on. 
nasty stuff, stuff that you can't believe that they just do and they think it's normal and they get away with, stuff in households with children that are growing up dysfunctional and damaged and permanently traumatized because God's wrath is being poured out on them because they don't worship God as God. They don't know the Lord. They don't serve the Lord. They serve themselves. And that's what always happens. It's what always happens. And it is not a loving thing to pretend that this is all going to work out okay. It's not working out okay. This world needs people who resemble Jesus. Jesus loved us. Jesus warns us. And that's why God has sent us, his apostles, to this hurting world to say, it doesn't have to be this way. So anyway, that's the end of chapter one. Um, we're going to dive back in next week. We're not talking about, I don't think we're talking about sexuality anymore for the rest of Romans. So if this was very unpleasant for you, uh, we're probably not going to do it again. Um, if anyone ever asked me to speak on this stuff, I'm not going to shy away. But also, this is not my main thing as a pastor. I, I, uh, I, I committed a lot of sin before... And I, I understand how hard it is to conform to the standards of holiness. So I've, I understand. I think I understand everything pertaining to this. But just because I understand the nuance doesn't mean there's not a clear yes and no, right and wrong, good and bad. So, uh, but we're not going to make this our main thing as a church. It's not the main reason that we're talking about disaffiliating from the UMC. And I don't plan on preaching on it again anytime soon. I'm going to preach God's holiness. And yes, that has sexual implications, but it has a lot of other ones too. Anyone who wants to talk about any more of this stuff, follow up with me during the week. If not, uh, that's okay, too. Let's stand and sing our closing hymn, number 557, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds.